Welcome to this first episode of the Research Talk podcast. My name is Helen Clare and I work at DISC on a variety of community and training activities related to our research strategy. Over the next few months in this series of podcasts, I'll be exploring different aspects of research with a range of guests from diverse parts of the research community. We'll be discussing their work, their passions, and the role of technology in shaping the future of research. I'm pleased to welcome our first guest, Cameron Nalon, who's Professor of Research Communication at Curtin University, Perth, Australia. We'll hear about Cameron's current work shortly, but his achievements include contributing to the Panton Principles for Open Data, Principles for Open Scholarly Infrastructure, the Altmetrics Manifesto, and being a founding board member and past president of Force 11, a global community focused on improving knowledge creation and sharing. Welcome, Cameron, and thanks for taking the time for being here today. Nice to be here. Firstly, could you tell us a little about yourself and your, your background and, and your professional interests? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off as a scientist. Um, my PhD is actually in chemistry from Australian National University. Um, and I guess I followed a fairly conventional academic career, did a postdoc in the UK and got a lectureship um, in the UK uh, before sort of going sideways. Uh, they discovered an interest in firstly in data sharing um, and in particular at the time in, in lab notebooks. And that led me to the web and, and the sharing of research content that led me to open access and down the rabbit hole of policy. So I spent some time um, continuing uh, in the UK research space where I was actually headed up the biosciences at um, the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory with the um, ISIS Neutron Source. And at that stage, I moved to PLOS as advocacy director um, and was really working on policy initiatives around open access for yeah, three to three years, I think that was. And I was interested then but this is around 2015, lots of policies in place and this sense that the policies were there, the funders were changing um, requirements, but was the change really happening? And we kept saying to ourselves, culture change is hard. And I started to get interested in what this culture change thing is. What are we talking about? We're talking about culture and why is it hard? Maybe there are places that are easy. And so that really led me into the humanities, um, into cultural studies, um, media and communication studies, uh, philosophy of knowledge. And that led me to Curtin University, where we work um, bringing sort of some of my experience from the data side um, and data analysis to a really humanities-based view of how do we look at the culture of researchers, how we can change it, and how we can develop a culture of greater openness amongst research communities. Um, and that's really what I've been focused on for the last three years. Thanks, Cameron. It's interesting to hear about your shift because I'm really intrigued by people's um, tw the twists and turns of different people's careers. So I was wondering how you just made that shift from a bi biomedicine in open into what you're doing now. Um, in terms of current activities, obviously, we can't go too far without talking about the pandemic. So it's, there's no doubt the pandemic has reshaped research, forcing collaborations to take place virtually and limiting access to fieldwork and labs and disrupting access to essential research resources such as libraries and special collections. What's been your experience and are there any positives we can take from it? Well, my experience of the, the pandemic has, at least at a personal level, has been involved being stuck in the UK for 14, 15, 16 months at this point. 
um, and not actually being able to get to Perth where the team's based um, because the borders are basically closed. So that's been one, certainly been an experience. And so thinking through the issues of you know, distant collaboration time zones and having to manage what we planned as sort of in-person intense workshops, bringing people together and having to figure out how to run those online, again, with people scattered around the time zones around the world. So how do you manage that in practice? Um, as many people have been doing, thinking about their conferences and, and workshops and, and collaborations. So, so that experience of, yeah, learning a bit how to do things differently, how things could be done differently, um, maybe how we could continue to do them differently and, and reduce our carbon footprint and travel costs a bit um, has certainly been a big part of the last so 14, 15 months. Um, but I guess writ large, there are two really big things I think the pandemic um, has taught us, and they're kind of in tension with each other in an interesting way. Um, obviously, one of the big stories has been the choice to make more content available, both from publishers releasing um, what would have otherwise been subscription access research content, but also researchers choosing on a massive scale to utilise preprints and data sharing capacities in a way that's not been the case before. And we've seen this really substantial increase in the pace of science and the pace of getting information from place to place and the diversity of paths through which it can flow as we're you know, needed on a large scale to get information from A to B where A and B are not the traditional places and not under the traditional conditions. So that story of more openness, I think, is a big part of it. But the other side, and pace, that, that story of openness and the speed of communication has been huge. On the other side, we've seen catastrophic failures arising from communicating too fast or, or incompletely or in ways that don't really reflect the contingency and difficulty of making interpretations. I mean, we're sitting in the UK, somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 unnecessary deaths as a result of policy decisions made at various stages. We've had whole groups of both deliberate and unintentional misinformation going into communities and, and literally killing people. We're at a stage where the people dying from COVID in the US are primarily now non-vaccinated and people who have chosen not to be vaccinated um, because of a, yeah, a deliberate series of misinformation campaigns. So we've got both this lessons we've learned from how to do things more collaboratively, more openly, more transparently, more rapid, um, and at the same time realising that there needs to be much better systems for filtering for collating, curating, validating information, getting that information to the right people who can make informed decisions in uncertain times when it's difficult to make decisions. So I think, yeah, we've learnt a lot on the big picture around information and knowledge creation and then a lot about just the, the techniques and technologies of being able to communicate, being able to carry on and how we can do things differently. So, you know, from work on thinking about how training operates in an online environment with the repo project through to the experience of people just remembering to turn mute the mute button on and off um, and how does that work and how do we you know, have good practices around that? I think there's a lot to learn there. 
um, and a lot to take into what's clearly going to be a world with more remote working, more collaboration through digital means and more flexible ways of doing things. So I think I hope that's what we can can learn. And again, you know, these are things that many of our colleagues with you know, mobility difficulties or other accessibility difficulties have been telling us for a long time. So, so let's hope we don't just go back to a default where we assume everyone can be in the room as well. You mentioned the, the repo project, which is the project we're working on together, that it's reimagining educational practices for open. Is there, is there anything particular that you're looking forward to coming out of that project? I think what's interesting about that project is its focus on, again, what can we learn for the long term from the experience of having to respond to an emergency? And so I think for me, that framing of we've had to experiment, we've had to do a lot of different things, we've had to try a lot of things that we would never have done otherwise, certainly not at the scale we have. And that's just, you know, with respect to training in particular. Um, so my personal experience of this started about 13 months ago when we were trying to figure out whether Force 11 Scholarly Communications Institute could go ahead. You know, in March, we still thought maybe we'd be back in person in August last year. Um, that seems like a lifetime ago. So, you know, what could we learn from the choices we made, the mistakes we made, um, you know, the things we wanted to do differently in the future? And what does this teach us about moving training more online to be more available, more accessible uh, for everybody? So I'm really looking forward to a better understanding of what people have done. Um, we've all been head down trying to keep the wheels moving. Um, so understanding the diversity of things that people have tried. Um, and I'm particularly interested in seeing the patterns emerge of what has worked and what hasn't worked for people. So we can really understand how to do you know, training and also conferences and workshops and information management uh, in the future and in whatever world we can create as we come out of the pandemic. If we just move on now to, to obviously one of your, your main activities, you, you currently lead co-lead the Curtain Open Knowledge Initiative, COKI. Uh, can you tell us a, a little bit more about that project and its purpose and its importance? Yeah, so... Along with um, Professor Lucy Montgomery, um, also at Curtin University, I lead this Curtin Open Knowledge Initiative. It's a strategic initiative of Curtin University. It's something that the university and the research office at Curtin thought was an important thing to explore as a university looking to chart the role of information and knowledge institutions into the future. The way we talk about it in general is our goal is to change the stories that universities tell about themselves and to put open knowledge at the heart of that narrative. And what we mean by that is that universities and research and scholarship, these are, these are information industries and they're also cultural industries. So they're the stories we tell ourselves about why a university matters are important. And those stories have been very strongly captured by data-led narratives around rankings um, and around metrics. I mean, this is particularly true in Australia, uh, with a very strong rankings and metrics culture around universities. And so, you know, many of us for a long time have railed against the fact that the traditional measures, the traditional rankings don't capture these new practices, these innovative ways of sharing and making knowledge and the different kinds of communities who might be involved in that. But in many ways, we haven't done much about it. And so the project was really an effort to take one step back and say, what is it that would get this agenda in front of university leadership to make it something they want to grab a hold of and take credit for and move forward. And information is at the heart of that. 
Um, so it's really about providing the types of information. And if that has to be rankings because that's what the vice chancellor needs to see on their desk in the morning, then we'll give you a ranking. But we'll also give you the information on why it's a terrible idea. And we might also tweak it to make a top ranked university that likes to think of it that way, maybe not realise it's not as top in a bunch of other categories as well, um, so that there are things to change and things to lead on. But equally, at the same time, you provide the information and the evidence base that can help those who are then charged with implementing change. Um, So we're really interested in taking control of the data that informs rankings and evaluations, um, but also metrics and qualitative evaluations, putting that back in the control of institutions and enabling it, therefore, to be used to tell different stories um, and ones that put openness at the the heart of of that process with the idea that universities are transitioning to this idea of an open knowledge institution. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that, an open knowledge institution? Yeah, so an open knowledge institution is a couple of different things. It's a, it's a slogan. Um, it's a thing that has captured people's imagination in some sense. It's, a, it's an aspiration. Um, so it's intended as something that uh, could be a goal for a university. Um, or indeed other organisations. What we really mean by it is this idea that the institution, and that's meant in a kind of political economy sense, so not just a, a formal organisation, but also you know set communities that have sets of rules and ways in which they operate in the way that peer review is an institution, but a, and a university is also an institution. So an open knowledge institution, in our view, is one that has the forms, the culture and the systems in place that provide a platform for communities to come together to make knowledge. And we sort of see three major parts of that. There's platforms that support communication. So the, the flow of information out, uh, out of the, the university, for argument's sake. There's diversity. And what we mean by that is, you know, diversity of experience, demographic diversity in terms of staff and, and engaged communities, but also different ways of thinking and knowing. And the, and the root, why that's important is because we think you know, knowledge is really created when different perspectives are brought together. Um, and it happens at the boundaries between communities. Whether that's, you know, two, two groups having a seminar and discussing a theory and, and arguing over which, which way it's correct or two different disciplines arguing about how to understand a particular phenomenon. Um, or indeed, you know, two different countries having different perspectives. You know, the, the, the knowledge is created where those things come into play uh, with each other. Um, and so that's as, as true of researchers seeking to engage, say, with Indigenous communities as deals with researchers seeking to engage with industry um, or policymakers. These are different communities. And so you want to bring diverse perspectives to bear. And the more diversity you can bring, in a sense, the more general knowledge you're creating. Um, the challenge then is you need to be able to coordinate those different groups and communities um, because it doesn't, if you're just throwing completely different groups together, you can't expect that to work. Um, You have to have systems of what we call coordination that are systems, tools, practices, sets of rules that make productive engagement. And so, again, an example of that is the technology transfer office. Uh, Things like NDAs are systems and rules 
that help an industry partner interact with a with a researcher to create a space which is safe for them to discuss and negotiate what it is that they're doing and why and, and, and what it's for. In the same way as you know, the mechanisms for scholars to engage with policy making through submissions, through you know, there's a there's a set of protocols and systems and places where that can happen. And those that's what we mean by coordination. And what we're really saying is an, an open knowledge institution is a set of communities that are coming together and try and create those kinds of spaces. If you think about those three aspects, communication, diversity, and coordination, they also map onto the three big policy areas that higher education institutions are facing. So the broad open science, open access agenda, if it's under the communication um, banner, obviously efforts around equity, diversity, and inclusion are fit in that space around diversity. And actually things around engagement and impact are really you know the tools we use for coordination. You know, what is it we are doing to promote industry interactions? What is it we are doing to promote interaction with other educational institutions? What are we doing to find the communities affected by our research and ask them what the important questions are? And so those that I think an open knowledge institution is one working towards doing better on those over time. So the way we frame that in a sort of slogan is to institutionalize the world's creativity in a way that supports um, the creation of shared knowledge. And that that's what in the end universities are for. It's interesting, there are some parallels to some of the work we're doing at the moment at JISC with the digital research community. So we're trying to bring different communities together. And as you say, it's that, that comment about that, that knowledge is created at those sort of boundaries between us. It's really interesting. Um, just, just to come back to, to that idea again of, of open institutions, um, why, why is, it, is it important for institutions to have access to data about their scholarly communication and research dissemination in particular? It's it's critical um, in today's data-driven world um, if an organisation, an institution, a group, a person isn't in control of the way in which their work is made legible, then they can simply disappear. And so even if you are legible and visible, it may be that entirely the wrong qualities of your work are the things that are being evaluated, looked at, valued. Um, and, you know, I think Scratch a researcher in most Western countries at least, and there will be complaints about the way we feel we are being evaluated and the wrong things are being measured. So what's really critical is that we take control of the uh, supply chain the of information um, into what is an information industry so that we we have the power to talk about how we should combine data, um, how we should analyse it, what values we're looking for. Because at the moment, we're driven by service providers, commercial service providers, mostly with, with shareholders, who don't share our values and don't necessarily have an interest in diversification um, in a wider range of practice. In fact, it's not in their business interests for us to become more complicated because it's we'll simplify their data flows if we all did exactly the same things and counted them in exactly the same ways. So I think there's a there's again there's lesson from the pandemic here, right? We we kept running out of toilet paper, not because we were running out of toilet paper, but because the supply chain that was providing all of that length, lengthy supply chain was very, very narrow and homogeneous. 
the whole way through. So a, so a block in movement in the travel of things um, caused whole systems to shut down. And similarly, if we homogenise and narrow the information we use to tell the stories about what's good about what we're doing, what's valuable about what we're doing, or what we want to change about what we're doing, we're going to have a similarly narrow and brittle perspective. So in that sense, you if you can't see what you're doing, and again, this has been the lesson of the project, it's not that senior leadership don't care about open access or aren't interested in reproducibility, it's that those issues and questions do not appear on the one slide summary. That's the level of detail they have the time to get into. And so we've got to provide that. Um, and if the data is not there um, and it's not properly put together, then we're telling the wrong stories about ourselves and we're going to continue to travel away from engagement with the public and research that's meaningful and important. So, so what barriers do you think there are to unlocking this data? Um, in many cases, there's questions of collecting it in the first place. So I guess, you know, an example of this, we're very, very good at counting citations from a particular source to a particular set of other outputs. We have very good systems and tools for, for that sort of narrow thing, but we have essentially zero information on how many people come onto your campus. How many members of the public are coming into the coffee shops on campus? Are they talking to staff? Um, or are they just there for the coffee? How many people come to the public events? How many events do you even run? So just collecting some of that data in the first place and thinking about how it could be done in a coherent way, that would be one step. We need transparency and openness. So we need the data we are using, particularly quantitative data, to be open, transparent and accessible. So you know, major strides being made in terms of, for instance, getting citation data um, that exists in the Crossref system to be made publicly available and, and public domain in effect, um, so it can be reused and analysed and tested and critiqued in ways that haven't been possible up until now. Um, and then we also need control over the systems through which they're displayed and, and managed. The current ranking systems are grotesquely, I don't know what word to use, um, but they would be failed in a high school or undergraduate project they're just they're not done well properly appropriately and so we have to take control of those processes I think even if we can't I mean some of us would like to get rid of them entirely that's not likely to happen very quickly because people like their sense of where they're ranked in the world and so we have another piece of work to do there but we definitely need to at least get them to a point where the data is vaguely transparent handled vaguely appropriately from a methodological perspective and put into people's hands in ways that they can then shape it again so ownership ip lack of access and lack of collection are, are all barriers that we're trying to within the project we're trying to tackle and lots of other people are working hard at different aspects of that and progress has been made on particularly the openness of bibliographic metadata. So, just, just following on from that, I've been looking at the um, the open access dashboards that Cookie's created, and I wondered what your thoughts were about it. it, it you know, you can see that Australia is thirty eight percent open access is publishing. Is there a danger of developing another ranking here? It's it's a it's a good question, and it's a question that you know, those people who are most critical about rankings uh, pose to us. So that's why we have some of them. <laughs> on our advisory group and in our community. It's a real challenge. Uh, I think what we should be working towards is getting people's attention 
and getting them focused on the fact there is more information there than they were aware of um, and that sometimes we're not doing as well as we thought um, or sometimes we're doing differently than we thought because um, the other example that keeps coming up with respect to open access. So, yeah, Australia's now... There have been issues with policy implementation and there have been things that have been moving a bit slower than we would like. But you know what focused attention was the fact saying we're a long way behind the UK on this. And suddenly, you know, there's, there's a lot more attention when you start saying, well, we're lagging. We're, we're not, we're not, we're nowhere near best practice. But then looking at the UK and I get this, um, every time I show a graph which shows the level of open access by type in the UK, everyone says, but the UK is all gold. What's this high level of green? Well, it's always been there. We know why it's there. Um, And actually the real story of open access in the UK is, yes, relatively high levels of open access publishing, um, but also, yeah, that the real story underlying it is that once the capacity of open access publishing deliver that access, it's actually the repositories and it's the institutional repositories that have been bridging that gap to bring the UK up to, you know, 80, 85% open access, which is, you know, you know, clearly at the top of what's happening around the world by, by country. So there's getting people's attention. There's definitely a, a big conversation to be had. Um, and we're trying to convene some of this around what should the defaults look like in terms of how do you display these things by default? Do you have a ranking? Do you make it more sense of where things are with respect to each other is it like two-dimensional rather than one-dimensional but also questions of just how you select what data display do you choose the biggest things to go first or do you focus your attention for instance on some sense of efficiency Um, do you really pick out the non-APC open access publishing element, even though it's not the majority of articles, but it's an important segment to, to note and to bring to the fore. So there's that. And then, yeah, there's a, there's the sort of the other perspective, the, the, the more not extreme, but certainly heading more in that direction that we should move away from numbers altogether and focus on qualitative assessments. And I definitely think there's a place for that. Again, you know, our, our ideas are rooted in the stories we tell and thinking about how all these tools enable people to tell stories. And what I hope is that we can work, we can enable people to tell the stories they want to tell. Um, so that means, you know, having their research valued for what they see as important in it, being able to tell the story of what's important and how they're delivering on it or examining themselves to see whether they're delivering on it. Um, but also being really cognizant that the instant you put a default in place, that's what people are going to use. Um, the Leiden ranking is a is a is an absolutely classic case of this. The Leiden ranking isn't really a ranking; it's a set of different parameters where you can see how, if you choose the parameters in different ways, different institutions compare to each other. But everyone calls it a ranking, and everyone uses the default out the gate as the thing they're going to. To look at. So it's a real challenge to think about how to make this work because they do all use the light ranking, right? Because it is a ranking because it because yeah, it can be used that way. So yeah, real, real challenges. Okay. There have been some concerns expressed by the community around research and research data as a commodity and the increasing shift of commercial publishers into this space. How do you see this developing over time? 
So I think it's a real, it's a real concern. It's a real issue. The work we've been trying to head towards is, to, is to build, um, out or support the building out of community data assets. So things that are held by, curated by, managed by the community. There are very, very serious issues. Let's say the, the, the interests of commercial organizations holding and bringing large data sets together. Um, are not the same as the interests of the scholarly community and not potentially the interests of the public at large. I think issues of when does monitoring ourselves collectively to look for and celebrate best practice and critique bad practice because we have you know, bad practice that needs to be addressed. We do need to monitor and correct. But when does that monitoring turn into surveillance? Um, and when does that surveillance get used in ways that, that are not intended? So I guess consistent with what all of the work I've done over the past decade or so, my argument is always that we need to focus much more on the governance questions. And that's both the hard governance. What is the data allowed to be used for? You know, what is collected and what rules do we put in place around things that maybe shouldn't be collected um, or should be held securely? But also the soft governance aspect of, you know, the defaults and the systems and, you know, how many decimal points do you present and things like that where we think there's a real opportunity to build expert communities around those questions um, and to set out what best practice could look like and to really think of that as a process and a process, not a single step solution to making the whole of research more inclusive by amplifying in those discussions the voices that haven't been at the table to this to this date. So it's a really critical issue. There is a real risk of universities and research organisations simply becoming conduits for data to flow to large organisations that then sell it back to us. Um, and the end game there, and this is work Spark North America has done quite a lot of work on, but the end game there is really organisations that sell us back our intellectual property before you realise we've created it. And that's not 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 a place we want to be if we want to support the long-term you know, innovation of all different types in the university. So, so what impact do you see the Koki project having? What, what, what impact do you hope it will have? Well, I think we're, I think the project has had an impact in terms of you know, revealing some of these other stories that are there in the data um, or in the data as we see it. So, you know, the UK is delivering open access through institutional repositories. Levels of open access in African countries through journals that charge APCs is higher than many European countries. And if you wanted to focus on delivering open access through publishing, then we should have been paying a lot more attention to what was built 20 years ago in Latin America, which remains by far, uh, with Indonesia challenging, the place where there's more open access publishing than anywhere else. So I think there's that impact of, you know, digging into the data, thinking about the data in different ways and, and looking for those different stories. That's surprising people, and I think that's great. We've brought together uh, at the moment a small group of people who are interested in this uh, advocacy agenda and interested in challenging some of the information systems that currently exist. And, you know, you watch this space for more of that, but we're really trying to work to provide systems that can enable universities, consortia, countries, systems to grab a hold of that data and do what they want with it and to have the tools in place to tell those different stories. And then further on, you know, what we hope is, is to change the story, change the narrative. 
you know, what's a university for? It's not just for tech transfer. It's not just for training a workforce in some narrow imagined space of what employment looks like in the 21st century. It's about a place where communities can come together and work on negotiating what we know about ourselves, the world. And so, you know, to that end, we've got a book coming out with MIT Press very soon now in August, I think, um, which sort of charts out some of that vision and how we might pragmatically get there step by step. So finally, um, JISC's vision is for the UK to be world leaders in technology for research. What role do you think JISC should play in supporting the research sector to realise that vision? So JISC has a very long history of being out ahead in terms of underpinning provision um, of systems, data, networks, technology that's needed, um, often before the research sector knew what was needed. And I think that's really key. So that, that foresight piece that brings together, you know, the expertise across, across the, the UK and the region through, you know, other collaborations and the world through other collaborations is really important. I think the, the other really key piece is to think strategically about the investments we're making in content systems and data. And so there's a lot of work going on and it's great work to better inform you know, UK higher education institutions of what's being published and where and when and how much was paid for it and all of those things. That's that's really important work. I think I would argue for a for a greater focus on from some of those efforts on improving, enhancing what's the work that's already been done on interoperability and openness uh, of the data itself. So thinking about that really complex intermixing of business and sustainability models with the yeah, the content licensing and availability, the technology there. But also in terms of that strategic investment, thinking strongly across the whole portfolio of investments from the subscription negotiations and across the subscription negotiations. So there's a real mandate to think about balancing the the different negotiations and requirements and standardizing things there through to how that works with the the technology provision and systems and then also you know clearly the the policy work the training the efforts to create the capacity and the the expert user communities to to draw on all of that so i guess at the core of that it's really there's lots of great stuff that JISC is doing and the key is really to think about the whole of it strategically and how it can both internally find important synergies but also support you know, the wider work that, that many people are doing and that's from a starting you know, trying to improve from a pretty pretty good level to start with thanks Cameron that's all we have time for today so thank you very much Cameron thanks thanks for having me thank you again for listening to this episode of the research talk podcast and thanks to Cameron for a fascinating discussion we'll be back soon for more episodes if you have any questions or topics you'd like to discuss drop us a line on podcast at jisc.ac.uk 